This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript, the good parts, build web applications with Node.js, AngularJS in depth, and advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to braintreepayments.com slash javascriptjabber. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 189 of the JavaScript Jabber, JavaScript Jabber podcast, not JavaScript Jabber <laughs> podcast. I was watching Star Wars last night. I think that was a Freudian slip on my part. <laughs> Today we have on our panel the amazing Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. And the slightly more amazing Amy Knight. <laughs> Hello. And I'm I'll, Joe Eames. <laughs> I'm Joe Eames. I'll be your host for today. And we have two very awesome and special guests. We have John DeGoes. Howdy. And Phil Freeman. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about PureScript with you guys. But before we get into that, I think it would be a great idea to have each of you sort of introduce yourself, a short background, and then your involvement with PureScript and why anybody would want to listen to you talk about it. So John, if you don't mind going first. Yeah, sure. So... I've been writing software for a long time, actually closing in on three decades now. So back since the early days of Commodore 64, and I've seen a lot of languages and written code in a lot of languages. Recently, the past probably 10 years or so, I've uh, done the whole entrepreneur thing and I've been starting companies and being the CTO at these companies. And one of the things that does is it sort of gives me the freedom to choose technologies and for my most recent company, which is a startup called Slam Data, based in Boulder, Colorado, I actually was one of the poor guys to choose Slam Data <laughs> to build a production quality front-end application to do visual analytics on top of uh, modern databases on. And uh, that's that's where I, I learned about PureScript. That's how I got involved in the ecosystem. But I'm actually quite a connoisseur of sort of niche languages, having chosen them at previous positions and dabbled in them and, and written little toy programs in a bunch of different languages, and also sort of consider myself a an amateur uh, programming language theorist wannabe. Awesome. 
I love it. Before we move over to Phil, there's just a couple of things I've really got to ask. First off, Slam Data? Slam Data. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Who came up with that name? Was that you? You know, I was actually a really frustrated system administrator at a previous job who, like, in a, in a fit of frustration with infrastructure and architecture and Amazon Web Service and all the crazy stuff that was going on to support this 24-7 cloud system, said, you know what, we should have called our company Slam Data. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, that's actually not a bad name for our company. So I went on to GoDaddy, and I registered it. And then years later, when I decided to do this company, I had that URL sitting there. And it sort of made sense because Slam Data is visual analytics for JSON-like data. So it's data that's not necessarily tabular. It's like XML, JSON, you know, semi-structured data is what they call it. And analytics on that type of data, it is not easy. Sometimes you are literally slamming the data into the analytics engine to get some useful business answers out of that. So the, the name fit, even though it was sort of an accident that I had it at the time, it, it actually fits pretty well. I think frustration is the most abundant resource in software development. So if you can find a way to make money off of that, then just just rake it in. That's what we're trying to do. (laughs) That's awesome. And also, 30 years, that's way cool. As a guy who's approaching 20 years myself and who is generally surrounded by people who are approaching five years. (laughs) It seems like people in the industry have, have just entered in the past five years or so. That's, right, and it's, that's especially some of those true. And people on this call, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> it's especially true in front end and open source too. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. And I know they're all sitting around there thinking, "Oh my gosh, these old guys who are so out of touch." <laughs> I know that that's what they think. Some of us. No, keep... I really don't think that. I honestly do not think that. I'm in awe of you guys. I'm not just I'm, saying. I I hear the words that Joe says, and I just think, can't wait till he's out of this industry forever. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait till he's not mucking this up anymore. (laughs) Uh, All right. We have a few Uh, things to add. Age and wisdom and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I I appreciate it. And complaints about whippersnappers that are on my lawn and playing their music too loud. That's right. All right. uh, Phil, how about you? Oh, yeah. So so I'm Phil. Uh, My nickname on things like Twitter and GitHub, you might know me as uh, PAF31. Not a very good name, but there you go. I've been doing um, programming in like a bunch of languages for a while. So mostly things like Java and C Sharp. Uh, And over the last sort of, I guess, three, four years, I've been um, sort of ramping up learning Haskell, started as like a hobby project, and I've been doing it professionally a little bit for the last year or so. And yeah, I started, I started my involvement with PureScript is that I started the PureScript compiler originally a couple of years ago, started it as a hobby project. And then, you know, lots of people got involved and, and now I, I still work on features in the compiler and I maintain a bunch of the uh, sort of standard libraries and things like that. Awesome. And I'm guessing by your accent that you're from Texas. Yeah. Manchester uh, by way of, uh, yeah, London, London and <laughs> <Texas> California. Ah, <laughs> uh, Cool. Manchester and London. Awesome. And which uh, team do you support? Uh, Manchester City. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about PureScript. First off, I think it would be awesome if we just sort of talked about, had you guys give us an introduction of what is PureScript and why people that do JavaScript should care about it. Sure. Phil, you want to take that one since you invented the language? Yeah, I can, I can answer that. So I started working at uh, my current company, Dicom Grid, a a couple of years ago. And I inherited sort of medium-sized TypeScript application. So I was, I was working in TypeScript, and, and for the most part, you know, I can recommend TypeScript. I very much enjoy it. If you come from 
you know, a Java C sharp back, background like I did, um, and you like static types and all these kinds of things, then you know, it, it can be very good but i had exposure to haskell and there were some things in haskell that i wanted to see in typescript so just basic things like uh, some types uh, new types just just uh, basic type system ideas that weren't available i had sort of bits of pieces of programming languages type things lying around uh, on my machine so I, I started sort of trying to assemble them into something that you know was an actual functional in both senses programming language and and like i said i got something working and it, it turned out that you know, quite a few people had the same you know, the same, the same, they wanted to work in the same way to, to compile to JavaScript. Um, maybe they'd come from something like TypeScript and they wanted a little bit more of this, the strong typing, or maybe they came from Haskell and, you know, they wanted something that had the semantics of JavaScript. So that's how we got started. And I think, you know, hopefully people will find PureScript useful for the same reason that I created it and why I find it useful, which is that you want something fairly close to JavaScript, like TypeScript is, so the, the nice syntax and types that you get from Haskell. So can you talk about, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, can you talk more about the features that PureScript has as a language? Sure. So most of the interesting features are sort of uh, taken, stolen from Haskell, I guess. So there's things like, I can go into more details on these, but you know, there's, there's sort of interesting type system features, like I said, you know, some types, or you might know them as like algebraic data types or tagged unions or something like that, depending on languages you've used. Um, and then type classes, which are look a little bit like, if you're familiar with things like Java, look a little bit like interfaces in Java. So they, they enable this sort of ad hoc form of abstraction. Um, and then there's a couple of more sort of esoteric type system features, things like uh, what we call rank end types, just basically different, different ways of enabling sort of interesting types of abstraction that you might want to capture in a type system, top rate, you know, at compile time. And then we also have one sort of unique, I guess, feature, which is called extensible effects. So extensible effects are a way of sort of capturing uh, in the type system things like the types of effects your programs can have, right? So in pure functional programming, we like to usually restrict ourselves to pure programs, programs that don't have side effects. But in the real world, you need to actually be able to deal with side effects. But then, so the goal should be to sort of capture uh, the difference between pure computations and, and computations with side effects, right? And extensible effects allow us to do that in a really nice composable way. Uh, so that we can say, for example, to the compiler, this piece of code, uh, you know, uses Ajax and it also writes to the, the developer console, but those are the only things it does. Please statically check that that is, that is the case. So, so those are sort of like, yeah, that's a sort of very high level overview of uh, some of the sort of interesting features. John, can you think of anything else that I've missed? Well, um, I think you hit on it before, but just parametric polymorphism and higher kinded types and type classes, type instances, obviously the record support, which maps really well to JavaScript. There are both a lot of really powerful features that help you write uh, correct software by construction, uh, but also really, really good first class interop with JavaScript, like records in PureScript are records in JavaScript, for example. And uh, you can actually call JavaScript functions from PureScript and vice versa because there's no runtime layer between them. So I don't know if that's a feature so much as an architectural choice, but that uh, synergy that it has with uh, the JavaScript ecosystem is is important in its own right, just beyond all the sort of type level and syn syntactical features that, that make it super easy to write powerful, correct software in the language. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I would definitely call the, the JavaScript interop a feature. I mean, one of the main sort of design goals when I first started the project was that, I, you know, I was coming from TypeScript. And one of the nice things about TypeScript is that, you know, you can just uh, get a, a definition file and, and start working against a library or you can compile to JavaScript. And the JavaScript looks a lot like, 
the, the source code that you put into the compiler. So those are both properties that I wanted. So there are lots of Haskell, well, there's a few Haskell to JavaScript compilers, but what I wanted was more like, if you like a better JavaScript in the same sense of TypeScript uh, with really seamless interop with JavaScript, not sort of a job, not, not a Haskell for the JavaScript runtime, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I have a couple questions and then kind of a meta question. John, you kind of rattled off a bunch of terms when you were talking about some of the features of PureScript. And my impression is PureScript is, is aimed partially at JavaScript developers. And you, and you said that too. It's just JavaScript developers that maybe want some more uh, guarantees about their code. How do you overcome kind of the vocabulary problem that functional programming suffers from? Where there are all these new words like, and then the kind of type systems that some purely functional languages have add a new vocabulary problem. Like, higher kinded types, right? Some people hear that and then their brain just turns off. They're like, I don't know how that's going to help me write this feature for a customer. Does yeah. that question make sense? It, it does make sense. And I think the fact is in a lot of sort of styles of functional programming, there's a lot of vocabulary that's foreign and strange and it can seem intimidating. And the reason for that is just some of these concepts are basically names for patterns that occur a lot in functional programming. Like when people say functor, for example, what does functor mean? Functor is this weird sounding thing that, that makes people want to plug their ears and go running and screaming in the opposite direction. But it's not, it's not because it's actually a, a hard thing to grasp. It, it's just a different thing. It's a different kind of thing. It's a certain type of pattern that occurs a lot in functional code. And there's no really great name to describe what that pattern is. Like if you're familiar with the old Java book, Gang of Four, you know, design patterns and visitor pattern and singleton pattern and all these other types of things. Well, singleton pattern can sound a little scary too. But when you see it and you see examples of it and you can see, oh, this is just a way of sort of codifying a, a common pattern and laws around that pattern, then it, it can become a lot less intimidating. And I think that as functional programming has become a bit more mainstream, there's been a lot more emphasis on writing more beginner-friendly material that takes away some of the jargon and shows people examples of, of what these things are to make them less scary. And I think we, we, we need more of that. And I do, I do want to say, though, that like these patterns, whether they're patterns like you know functors and, and monoids and stuff like that, or whether they are features of the language like higher-kinded types, they exist uh, for a very good reason, and, and that is there are a lot of people out there who, who want to be able to push as much work in verifying the correctness of the software to the compiler and let it do the heavy lifting. Like I, I can tell you as someone who's been writing software for uh, 30 years, everything from sort of assembly to basic Pascal, Fortran, and C, C++, on and on, basically every language you can imagine, I've written software in, in that language. And it is really hard to reason about complex applications with, with lots of state. And, and the reason for that is the way we program in languages like JavaScript is it's basically do X and then do Y and then do Z and then do W and so forth. It's this list of instructions that gets fed to the CPU uh, more or less verbatim. It's a recipe for getting a given result. And when we try to understand what that program does, we basically have to go through all the steps that the CPU does. So we have to simulate in our mind, okay, we've got this variable here and we're going to update it. We're going to change it. We're going to increment it by two, but only if this other condition is met. 
and then we're going to clobber the whole thing with some new results. And in this sort of uh, reasoning about programs by simulating the state of the program in your mind, it works okay for small programs. If you've been doing it for a while, you can actually understand probably a thousand lines of JavaScript to know exactly what it does. But as you start uh, scaling the size of these programs and adding more members to the team and your program goes from 1,000 lines of JavaScript to 50,000 or 100,000 or 300,000 lines of JavaScript, our ability to simulate the operation of the program by updating sort of all these registers in our brain as we're looking through the code, it, it falls down to zero and we lose our ability to reason about these programs. And tests help. Tests help a ton. But what a lot of people who have discovered functional programming have found, and specifically sort of statically typed functional programming, is uh, there are features of uh, modern type systems that let you force the compiler to do the heavy lifting. And they dramatically simplify the way that you reason about software. Like this thing, which itself sounds pretty scary, algebraic reasoning, is just a fancy name for uh, an algebraic equation, A equals B. In functional programs, you can reason about a lot of software by saying, okay, this thing is actually defined to be equal to that. A is defined to be equal to B. So anytime I see an A in my code, I can actually replace it with B. And I can understand the program in this sort of, you know, compositional uh, rote method of substitution. And that holds in functional programming. And when you build software around that and and take advantage of these scary sounding things like higher kinded types or row types and so on and so forth, you're actually able to push a lot of what you would have to do internally sort of in a different way up, up in your brain, push it off onto the compiler and just focus about these little tiny little functions that accept some value and they return some value. And if you give them the same value, they always return the same value and you never need to think at more than the level of a single function and you can you can work your way up from the low levels of your application where you have small functions. And if you think, oh, yeah, I look at that and I can see it's right, then I can sort of build upon that and look at the functions that are built using those. And I can verify that and say, oh, yeah, that looks right to me. And then so on and so forth. My reasoning becomes composable. And I'm able to, with the help of the compiler, verifying all, all the types and that I'm not making any typos and that I'm doing things in the correct way. I'm able to have a great degree of confidence before I even run the software that it's actually going to do what's intended. And actually, a developer who works at my company at Slam Data, the other day, he, he told me about PureScript Halogen, which is one of the libraries in the PureScript ecosystem for building front-end web applications. He told me, if the thing compiles, it works. <laughs> it's, it's maybe not always easy to get it to compile, uh, but if it actually does compile, it works. And that's a... a, a pretty large sort of uh, testament to the power of static types and functional programming and even pure script, because uh, for those of us who've done a lot of JavaScript single web page applications, there's an awful lot of debugging that goes on. And you may be able to write 100 lines of code and, and have that work uh, sort of right off the bat. But anything beyond that, all bets are off. It's a lot of time with the web inspector and and printing out and alerting or logging to the console various expressions to figure out what's going wrong. And and with tools like PureScript, uh, we have a better way. It doesn't totally eliminate uh, the need for uh, thinking about things deeply, but it, it simplifies it and lets you think about things in small, more digestible chunks and push some of that 
heavy duty reasoning off into the compiler where machines really excel at that type of stuff. I kind of had two questions based on Jameson's question, which I really liked. Um, as someone who is newer to this, do you feel like there are certain prerequisites that someone should have before they start looking at it? And then second, because we've talked about Elm on the show before, I know you just talked about TypeScript, but how is PureScript different from Elm? So I'm, I'm happy to, to speak to both and then maybe Phil can chime in. On, on the first one, I think what I've seen is that one of two things will help you if you're coming to PureScript, and that is either A, you know the JavaScript ecosystem well, so you know what tools like Bower are and NPM and you know CSS, your way around CSS and HTML and all these other things. Or for those of you who, who don't have that background, then coming into it with uh, knowledge of uh, functional programming, whether it's Clojure or even in JavaScript, sort of Ramda or one of the other libraries out there, um, or Haskell or OCaml, something like that, it, it can really help a lot. It could be a bit overwhelming, I think, for people who are new to functional programming and new to front-end programming and the whole JavaScript ecosystem to tackle a language like PureScript because everything from how you build it to deploy it to how you do useful stuff is contained inside the whole JavaScript domain knowledge. And then how you write your programs, how you structure them, what these terms mean, that sort of derives from functional programming. And and if you don't have either, then it's, it's going to be a long uphill battle. I was going to say, I guess my question was not someone who's totally new to programming, but someone who has done JavaScript because, you know, I you can do some functional programming just in JavaScript itself. So are there certain just like functional programming concepts or starting with something before PureScript? Or do you think it's okay to jump right into PureScript if you haven't done functional programming before, but you've done regular, you're familiar with the JavaScript ecosystem already? I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of JavaScript developers already know, you know, kind of a lot of the, the building blocks of functional programming, right? I mean, things like, you know, John, you mentioned uh, Ramda, which must admit I'm not that familiar with, but, you know, I've, I've used underscore and I think a lot of people use underscore, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, underscore, you know, emphasizes things like maps and folds and, and reduces yeah. and, and these kinds of things. And they really are the building blocks, right? Like putting functions together, higher order functions and assembling programs this way. And to a certain extent, you know, after that, everything else is, you know, there's various techniques and whatnot, but everything else is sort of building up abstractions and, and, and things on top of that. So absolutely, I think, you know, people should try and, and come to PureScript that way. As you build these abstractions, you know, a good type system really helps a lot, I think, because you can, you start assembling these pieces. And, and as John mentioned, you want this sort of local reasoning property where, you know, it's easy to, to reason about one, one map or one folder or a handful, right? But then as you sort of start assembling this into a large program, you don't want to have to keep all that structure in your head, right? So that's where I think something like PureScript comes in handy. Can I offer another perspective on that question, Amy? Yep, sure. So, well, I guess it's different from the question you actually asked, which is like, if I know JavaScript, what do I do to prepare myself to get into PureScript? But I think in some ways it can be easier to learn functional programming if you are still learning programming. Um, I know for me, I, I came to functional programming after I felt pretty comfortable doing, uh, I guess, imperative programming. And, and I was used to feeling like I knew what was going on and I understood everything. And I'd kind of forgotten the feeling of hearing a concept and not really understanding it well and not seeing what it was used for. And, and so it took me a little bit of effort to get used to being confused again, I guess. <laughs> um, so I, I think if you're learning programming for the first time, just programming in general, you're used to working to understand things. And I had gotten lazy. 
so I think it could almost be easier to learn functional programming if you're starting off at the beginning of, of your journey or career or whatever, because you're, you're used to having to work to understand stuff. And there are all these new concepts that are new no matter what, or, or they're, they're new if you've been programming for a while and doing imperative programming, or they're new if you haven't been programming at all. They're like the same amount of newness. So it's helpful to just like chill out and say, it's okay if I don't understand stuff, I'm going to work to understand it. I think that's the most important thing. It's just having that attitude of saying, yeah, I don't understand this, but I'm not going to be afraid. And and I can speak, again, as someone who's been programming for a long time, the well is so enormously deep that I'm never going to know even a tiny fraction of all there is to know about computer programming. And in order to sort of have uh, skills that stay current, you just need to sort of give up the idea that you're ever going to be a master of programming. It's always going to be this continuous process of learning and the only way that can happen is if we sort of let go some of some of that you know fear of not knowing and end of being confused and really dedicate ourselves to working through it it's, it's okay to be confused it's okay to not know what what this means sometimes we just need to roll up our sleeves and and dig in and and have faith and confidence that we'll come out the other side and in in fact we we do in most cases come out the other side having leveled up as a, a software engineer yeah, I think it's pretty interesting that recently there's, I think there's been even a greater focus on functional programming and JavaScript. Yeah. And so seeing that hopefully makes people more interested in concepts like this. But there's also plenty of talk about the fact that, hey, if you go and learn a new paradigm like functional, it'll level up your programming. And there's it's a very widespread thought. And... It is really cool, even when you have been doing something for a long time, to go in and do something new. We like that generally, which is a reason why a lot of people get into programming. And it's great. I think it's actually enjoyable to be in a situation where I feel very lost and uh, trying to learn something new. And I've had 20 years of it and it never stops. Yeah. So part of me asking that question, too, because I was curious about how it related to Elm. When we did the Elm episode, and I looked around at Elm a little bit, and I've still looked around um, even after we had the episode, and it's been very approachable for someone who's newer. So uh, that was part of why I had asked that question and was curious how you felt PureScript related to Elm. So I think originally um, the way I thought about this, you know, a couple of years ago when, when PureScript was first starting, I, uh, I was I was using PureScript for work, obviously. You know, I um, I built it because I was using TypeScript and I, and I wanted to do these Haskelly things um, in my compiled to JavaScript language. So I evaluated a bunch of um, a bunch of different com- uh, you know Haskell to JavaScript if you like languages, and Elm was one of them. And and at the time, I think Elm had a bit of a, Elm was focused on things like UI development and it had a runtime, and and those were two features that you know sort of excluded Elm for me. I, I wanted literally zero runtime. I, w- I wanted to, to build something just from foundations with no runtime whatsoever. And, and I wanted a general purpose language as well, right? Can you um, talk about the no runtime thing and why that was important to you? That's interesting to me. Sure. So, I mean, the, the sort of libraries that I was actually interested in writing initially, um, you know, I mentioned like maps and folds, right? That was my initial use case. I, I didn't envision a language that had, you know, rank end types and type classes and all these things and writing sort of like general purpose applications. I, my original vision for PureScript was sort of, you know, writing small combinator libraries and, and, and small data structure libraries and then dropping them into a larger TypeScript application. Okay. And and having a runtime system, however small, you know, sitting in there when all I want is some data structures and functions on those data structures is is kind of unnecessary, right? So so at the time, that was the reason why 
um, I chose to work on PureScript instead of choosing Elm. But now I think that the gap is sort of closed somewhat, right? PureScript has nice uh, UI libraries, some of which are influenced by Elm, in fact. And Elm has become more general purpose at the same time, right? So Elm has uh, ways of dealing with uh, side effects in the real world. So, so I think, you know, the feature sets of the language has gotten closer over time. And I think the difference now is, is more of sort of a philosophical one. It's like we both have approximately the same goal of how do we sort of bring uh, pure functional programming to the JavaScript community. But the difference is sort of how do you do that? What's the best way to grow that language and its community? And, and how should such a language, how should it look and how should it work and these sorts of things? So correct me if I'm wrong, but for example, could you use PureScript to compile out JavaScript that you would run in, on Node rather than in the browser? Yeah, exactly. So, um, But you can't do that with Elm. I think, I think now there are some projects where Elm is running on Node. Like I say, Elm is becoming sort of more general purpose. I've seen it running on Node, and I think I saw somebody was working on sort of React Native recently. Same, same sort of things with PureScript, right? Same sort of targets, Amazon, Lambda, all these different types of targets. Like I say, the difference now is sort of more philosophical and um, more, more one of like approach and how do you solve the problem rather than what the problem is. The other thing that uh, you mentioned two things, uh, uh, differences or things that maybe, I don't know if turned you off is the right word, but one is general purpose. The other one was Elm was, or you also said that Elm was a very uh, UI focused. Could you talk a little bit just about that? Like, I think, I guess this is just the other side of the coin, right? PureScript being very general purpose where Elm was really meant for UIs. Right, so PureScript doesn't. Does PureScript? Would you find it to be as suitable for writing the writing UIs as you find Elm to be? And PureScript definitely has UI libraries, and you, you can choose to write uh, rich UIs. I mean, Slam Data, as John was saying, is you know its entire front end is written in, in PureScript, right? I think the problem is sort of like it's like a general problem in a lot of domains, right? You, when you design a, pro a programming language, you you have to make this trade off between sort of expressiveness and uh, tooling, I guess. Uh, so if you had picked Elm. At the time, I was picking, choosing to, to work on PureScript. You could, you, you might have chosen Elm, right? And and Elm comes with sort of best-in-class tooling because it is a language that was designed um, with UIs as a, as a, you know, its principal focus was was UIs, right? So so they had great tooling. Or you might have picked PureScript, and, and you buy yourself sort of more general-purpose language features. But because those ideas aren't sort of like core and built into the language, you sort of like loosen the tooling, right? So you have this trade-off of sort of like you know, how much expressiveness do you have and how much generality versus sort of what analysis and tooling can I buy myself? And would you consider PureScript to be a functional reactive programming language? No, I, I, I mean, you, you can certainly write reactive applications in PureScript, but I, I wouldn't call it a reactive programming language. I mean, definitely a, a pure functional language. You also said earlier that one of the things that you wanted was uh, like, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but like easy integration with JavaScript. So for example, if I had a jQuery plugin that I really wanted to use with my PureScript app, would I need to rewrite that or wrap it, or does a plugin really easy? So um, for, for most things, you can actually just, you can take existing JavaScript functions and data types and, and sort of declare them as available to your PureScript program. So in the case of types, you just sort of say, uh, you know, this is a type. You know, the, um, you don't really talk of types in JavaScript, but there's there's a type of, of you know jQuery selectors, right? And there's a type of you know jQuery events. So you declare those types, and and then you can give types to your functions as well. So things like you know actually running a selector, something like query selector, right? You can give that a type involving those ones you just created. There is a sort of there's a, there's some boilerplate that. Um, you know, in some cases the types don't exactly match, so there's some restrictions on the way uh, PureScript 
uses JavaScript functions, for example. So in, in a lot of cases, you have to do some wrapping in order to get it into the right shape, but it's entirely sort of boilerplate and you do it once and it's a relatively small amount of code. Um, and then you can just use that code, like jQuery plugins, for example. Um, you can use it from your pure script code. And th there's efforts going on as well to um, convert things like, you know, there's various IDLs for things like the DOM and WebGL um, to reduce the sort of, you know, the, the, the boilerplate code so that you don't have to write that by hand. You can actually just code generate that. Okay. John, I know you, you wanted to jump in and talk about your perspective on choosing PureScript over Elm. Yeah, that's right. So I actually looked at Elm and PureScript at the same time. And I was interested in UE development. That's, in fact, the only thing I was interested for. We had already settled on Scala for the back end. And um, so we just needed that front end piece, which would be sort of a single page application, rich internet application, whatever you want to call it that offers sort of all the features of a desktop application and pretty UE intense too, not just simple forms and whatnot, but Slime Data is a visual analytics application that lets you explore data and uh, refine it and search it and uh, create visualizations on it. So really a, a hefty duty UE use case if ever there were one. And I looked at Elm I looked at PureScript, I looked at TypeScript, I looked at lots of the Alt.js languages. And in the end, it actually did come down to Elm versus PureScript for me, because both of them were very clearly oriented around the functional programming paradigm. And some of the other ones were a mix and, and mash, like TypeScript, you can do functional programming in it, but you can do sort of JavaScript style imperative programming can do anything you want in the language. And I was looking for something that specifically made that very opinionated choice to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this in a functional programming way. And so it came down for Elm to Elm versus PureScript. And here were the things that I noticed. First off, like Phil says, PureScript is a much more powerful language, even though sort of the gaps have uh, closed somewhat. To this state, there's no way to um, express the concept of a generic container of things, like a list of integers, for example. There's no way to abstract over that in Elm. And there are lots of other examples where uh, there's something that I'm familiar with, there's something that I'm, I'm used to, like abstracting over containers of, of objects of some type of value, that I just was very reluctant to live without that power. Once you've tasted that power and, and you've seen how oh, the compiler can actually make sure you don't put a string in a list of integers and stuff like that, all those sorts of benefits that comes from those types of abstractions, it's hard to go back on that and program in a, in a simpler way. So for me, that was one key observation is that PureScript was a much more powerful language and, and still is to this day. The other thing is uh, Elm was substantially easier to use and uh, more tailored around the use case of UE development. And that was super attractive to me. So on the one hand, I had Elm saying, yes, we do UEs really well. And I had PureScript saying, well, we can help you write code that is correct by construction and that can verify all these wonderful things about your software and let you model things much more precisely than you can in Elm. And, and it was a real trade-off. But really what ended up deciding it for me is that... Uh, Elm makes the very opinionated choice to say functional reactive programming in this particular variant. There are lots of different sort of styles of, of FRP, 
Um, and Elm makes the decision that a particular variation of FRP is the correct choice for building UEs. And I totally understand why that they do that. And it, it's not a bad choice. It gets people up to speed really fast. But at the end of the day, having worked in FRP libraries and written FRP libraries and having just spent more time than, than I wish developing UEs, I wasn't entirely convinced that that particular choice was the only choice or the best choice for the type of application that I was developing. And so in a sense, like Elm's ease of use and its very opinionated choice of how you should build a UE, it pushed me away because even though I don't like it when languages refuse to sort of take stands on core features and they let you uh, express the same concept in a hundred different ways, I like opinionated languages. I don't like it when a language takes a particular thing like a promise, for example, or a particular variant of FRP and says, this is the way that we're going to do it in that language. I like languages to be separated from libraries. And Elm sort of blurs that distinction a bit because it basically chose a, a, an FRP library and sort of baked it into the, the language. And as a result, we spent a, a lot more time uh, early on in building our application, just sort of trying to figure out what the UE side of things was going to look like. And we ended up with something that's not FRP, but that it fits our use case really very well. It's much more similar to React, uh, which is not FRP. It's sort of inspired by FRP, but it's actually quite different. And it's working really well for us. And and if I had chosen Elm, even though there would have been a sort of a, a shorter ramp up curve because it provides all this stuff out of the box, uh, we, we would have been stuck on on their particular choices for all time, pretty much. So the reason I chose PureScript is because it is a general purpose programming language that is very powerful and it doesn't have an opinion on the best way to build a UE. And I actually like that because I've been building UEs for a long time and, and I, I don't need any, I don't feel like I need extra help. Uh, I'm happy to choose a library that does it in the particular way I want to do it for a particular project. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're kind of referring to the Elm architecture when you're talking about that, this particular way of building UEs. Yes, as well as signals and channels. Ah, okay. I just want to um, point out the, that the shared delusion of calling UIs UEs has now spread to Joe. Yeah, I, I'm like <laughs> reflecting the way you call it. Is that me? <laughs> I'm channeling you. Yeah. That's, that's uh, what you mean when you, do you mean user interfaces when you say UEs? <laughs> You know what I mean. Well, no, I just want to make sure. <laughs> I'll call them GUIs. GUIs. I like that word better. Yeah, GUIs okay, oh, but UE apparently. Okay. All these words. The first time I ever said iffy at work, I was the only one who knew what that meant. Oh, really? That's funny. So one other follow-up question, just for clarification. I mean, I know Elm a little bit. Uh, you're talking about gen containers, generic containers, right? And you said... Uh, something to the effect of iterating over like a list of integers. So could you be a, go a little bit more in depth than that? Like my understanding, of course, here is that Elm, if you have a list of something, it's a typed list. You can't have a list that has an integer and a string next to so, each other. So, so that's right. But let's say we want to abstract one layer beyond that and say, well, we, we don't want to force our code to only work with lists because it should be able to work with options that contain zero or one, or it should be able to work with tree-like things. It should even be able to work with things that represent effects in our program. So let's say we, we, we take that you know list of A's and we try to generalize it. Well, if you generalize that with respect to the operation of changing the values, so if you want to go from a list of strings and map that into 
like a, a list of integers by parsing each string as an integer. So you want to do that mapping operation. When you try to generalize that mapping operation across any possible container, not just a list, you end up with this thing that, you know, is called a functor, big scary name, but all it really means is you have a container of, of things that you can change the values. You can pass a function in and map over the internal structure of that container to change the contents of the container by modifying each value. And you can't express that abstraction called a functor or, or basically any of the other sort of, you know, classic FP machinery. There's no way to express that because you need a higher kind of type there and Elm doesn't support them. Gotcha. Um, one other thing that I thought as a sort of follow-up question here is we talked a lot about Elm and PureScript. Are there other languages or similar technologies that you would put into the same realm? Obviously, Elm and PureScript exist in a similar vein. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about that's in the same realm? I think there's sort of two, uh, two classes of things that are, you know, rel- uh, you know, relevant here, right? There's sort of like the Haskell to JavaScript things because, you know, PureScript has a Haskell flavor and then there's the, the typed better JavaScript, if you, if you like, right? Um, where you actually have semantics of JavaScript like PureScript, but adding features. And, you know, I would, I would put Elm and, and PureScript, well, it's debatable, but I would, I would put them in the better JavaScript category, right? Like building on top of JavaScript. And in that category, you've got things like, there's, there's a language called Roy, which is by uh, Brian McKenna. Uh, very similar to PureScript, actually. Implemented in JavaScript, slightly different feature set, but pretty close. And then, you know, things like TypeScript. Um, and then untyped things like CoffeeScript also sort of go into that category, right? But then on the other side, you have the family of sort of like last languages that are trying to take the, the entirety of Haskell or, or some subsets of Haskell, but with its semantics and, and, and bring that and compile it down to JavaScript to run on the JavaScript runtime. So those are things like uh, Fay, Haste, uh, and GHCJS. And they're, they're very powerful if you want to do, um, you want to take arbitrary Haskell code that you might have running on the server, for example, and compile it then to JavaScript and have the, the exact same behavior uh, in the browser. But again, you have these these trade-offs, and the trade-off here is you'll lose sort of readable code, and, and maybe you lose nice interop with, with JavaScript libraries and, and that kind of thing, right? So yeah, I think I think those are those are the two categories that I'd considered anyway. Um, John, did that um, No, I do think that. The the one category is sort of a better JavaScript, like TypeScript and whatnot. And then the other category is like, well, you know, screw JavaScript. We just want a functional programming language that we can use in the browser. And that's the category that Elm and PureScript fall into, as well as uh, Roy and Fay and Hayes, GHC, JS. But I do think that sort of in that bucket of functional programming languages that happen to or were designed to compile to JavaScript, you hit all the major players and actually, in, in my mind, the, the two realistic choices are, in fact, Elm and PureScript. There are companies building production applications in, in both of them. They've got great communities. You know, they're, they're just really great projects. I don't think you can go wrong choosing either one of those if you want to do FP in the browser. What about ClojureScript? So that, <laughs> I guess that falls into a yet a, a, another category of uh, dynamically typed functional programming. And I forget that exists from time to time because I've been statically typed for so long. But uh, there is that category of dynamically typed functional programming in the browser projects. And uh, ClojureScript, I've, I've seen some presentations on it. It looks great. Some of the projects out there like Ohm look like they're very, very powerful. But that seems to be it, – it, it seems like it, it doesn't really overlap a lot with um, a lot of these other projects. That is, the people choosing that are, are doing so because they're using Clojure on the back end. 
and, and they want to use the same language on the front end. So they end up with that as the default choice. It's almost more similar to the Scala JS uh, for Scala, which you, people will choose as sort of the default for their front end development merely because they happen to know Scala. It doesn't doesn't really escape those sort of niches. All right. Jameson, did you have a question? I do. It's kind of more about the background in history of PureScript. So, Phil, you, you said you were trying to choose between using Elm or writing your own compiler for, for a language. And that, to me, is like so far out of a thing I would consider practically possible. Like, I, I can understand choosing between tools, but it's like, can I use this thing that's already there? Or should I invent my own compiler to do things? Like, what is your background that led you to consider that as a thing that seemed practical? <laughs> Does that yeah, make sense? Definitely. It's, it's not, Are you a um, genius? That's what I'm trying to ask. No, I'm, I'm definitely not um, like a, a PLT, um, a programming language theory educated person. Right? I, I sort of, you, you tend to pick up things like, you know, you get exposure to things like parsing technologies in Haskell and, and you know, type checking type libraries. Um, when you work in a language like Haskell, right, um, these are good applications for Haskell. So you tend to see a lot of them. So when you're sort of immersed in the Haskell ecosystem, you tend to learn some of these ideas. It wasn't sort of a you know a frivolous decision. You know, I'll, I'll just write a, a program language to solve this problem I had. I, I spent a, a very long time, you know, analyzing all the different alternatives. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, all these, uh, you know, the GHC JSs and, and Haste and Fay on the Haskell side, and, and Roy and, and TypeScript and, and all these other languages, Elm included. And you know, I, I had some some constraints. Um, like I said, the no runtime thing. I wanted I wanted a language with no runtime and something that was general purpose and, and all these these constraints. Um, and and none of them. Um, I would say Roy was actually the closest at the time to, to the, the language that I wanted. Um, and I had some sort of minor minor complaints about Roy's um, foreign function interface at the time, and I think it's changed since. But but Roy was Roy was a really interesting project, and yeah, I was very close to using Roy. So I actually uh, started out in parallel using um, TypeScript and developing PureScripts on the side. And PureScript got to the point where I could sort of write very small, the, the small combinator libraries and data structure libraries that I wanted. Um, and the, the FFI was was sort of simple enough, and the code gen was simple enough that I could actually take the generated code and drop it in and use it alongside the TypeScript code. So I worked that way for for, for quite a long time. So so it sounds like you had kind of enough concerns with the existing technologies out there, and you felt like you had picked up enough. Like, was it a daunting task to you to create your own language, or did you feel like you could just kind of fiddle with it enough to get something working that you liked, and it kind of grew organically? So I think it's relatively simple. I'm not going to say simple, but um, it's, it's relatively simple to sort of get a compiler that does something useful quite quickly, right? Especially, um, like I say, if you're if you, in the Haskell, Haskell ecosystem and, and you've seen things like Parsec for parsing and, and examples of things like type checkers are fairly easy to come by, right? So you, you learn these techniques. And, and I had bits and pieces of things like this sitting around. Um, and, and, and things like code generation are, are relatively simple as well right? and those are like the main the main three components of, of the initial version of pure scripts right so i put something together and you know I, I posted i posted the thing that i'd made on reddit on reddit haskell um and as i said you know people started saying things like oh you know i, I um you know i got some critiques and, and you know people wondered why i did things a certain way but a lot of people had said things like oh you know i was looking for a programming language like this or a way to compile to javascript like this and then from then it, it mostly you know the, the community sort of grew quickly and, and lots of people started contributing to the the compiler and then you know the goals sort of shifted somewhat but you know the the, the initial goal of having this you know clean code gen and good interrupt with javascript was has always sort of been there yeah and we've just sort of added more interesting features as, as time's gone on but 
yeah, I think I think you know, sort of bootstrapping something. You know, I had the benefit of of working in TypeScript and having this nice FFI to sort of to drop my sort of build artifacts build artifacts into into my TypeScript project and and bootstrap the project that way. And I think that worked quite nicely. So, what do you think the effect of uh, WebAssembly is going to have on languages like PureScript? Well, personally, I'm not I'm not sure that it's going to have a, a huge effect. This is just my opinion, which may be totally totally wrong, but WebAssembly. It requires you implement your own custom garbage collector, among other things. So you basically have to solve a, a whole host of problems that right now, uh, language designers like the people behind Elm and PureScript and so on and so forth don't have to solve. So I think it's actually going to be more work to support those types of low-level, assembly-level technologies. Potentially, maybe, performance could Im- improve if your compiler technology was really, really good. But it, it seems like it, it would take... A certain amount of time before that technology is is developed and and matures to a point where it can be competitive with all the sort of fancy optimizations that your browser is doing in JavaScript anyway, and especially for a language like PureScript, which in general, with one or two exceptions like query functions and, and whatnot, the, the semantics map rather naturally and performantly to JavaScript. I don't see a, a huge benefit there, certainly not in, in the short term. And I think it, it's just going to make it's going to make the prospect of creating an Alt.js language so daunting that many people don't even target WebAssembly; they they just target ordinary JavaScript. But I could be wrong with that. Mm. Bill, can we can we get a definition of WebAssembly first? I don't think we've actually had a show about it. Well, it's basically a, a lower level sort of assembly language that you can build programs on on top of. It's kind I of like a, a target specifically for compile to JS languages, basically, right? Yeah, I think um, Scripton is the main user right now. Is that is that right? I have no idea. I actually don't know that much about it. My understanding is that it's sort of like it's well suited to, uh, you know. So I I'm not an expert on this at all, but I I think it's sort of better suited to things like you know compiling from like C C plus plus or maybe LLVM backend or something like that. So it, in that sense, you know, PureScript really um, leans heavily on the fact that JavaScript is in fact a functional language, right? And you have first class functions and scoping is the right sort of scoping. So I think I don't really know enough details to say with certainty, but I think it would be very, very hard, very difficult to, um, to you know, to target uh, WebAssembly by comparison. Yeah, so, so you, personally, I'm not excited for that, and I don't think it's going to revolutionize the Alt.js system. I think very few compiler writers will, will choose to do that. I think, like others have said, it's probably a better fit for uh, running C and C++ or assembly language or sort of low-level languages because all these people are, are translating these sort of binaries and other types of programs into JavaScript. And if they're old enough, like 15 years old, it actually runs quite performantly, surprisingly. I think uh, it'll be a better fit for those sorts of applications than very high-level functional programming languages. So there's a, a thing we've kind of mentioned tangentially, but we haven't talked about directly, which is my impression is the pure script, the, the compiled JavaScript that PureScript generates is pretty readable. Is that an explicit design goal or, or did it just kind of happen? Yeah. So one of the nicest properties of um, TypeScript for me is, is the fact that I can take the compiled code. Um, obviously, like I, I write TypeScripts quite a lot, but and I, I read and write TypeScripts, but um, I, could, I have the option of taking the compiled JavaScript and you know handing that off to a JavaScript developer if I really want to, and they, if they don't want to deal with the, the TypeScript toolchain or anything like that. Um, and it's very readable, right? The the source to compile JavaScript translation is very shallow. Um, it's really obvious what's going on. I think that's a great property to have. So PureScript tries to do the same thing. 
But um, you know, there's abstractions in PureScript where that doesn't always work. So especially when you're using things like type classes, um, you end up having to maybe make up names for variables that you wouldn't write in the source code, for example. And then you have some sort of like you have things that end up looking a lot like you know machine generated code when you have type class heavy PureScript, for example. When when you when you use the fragment of PureScript that doesn't have doesn't have type classes, it's it, yeah, it's, it's a very it, it shares that property of TypeScript, so it's a very sort of shallow code transformation to the the output JavaScript, which I think is, is pretty useful. Like I'd be probably more reluctant to hand off uh, compiled PureScript code to a JavaScript team as sort of a build artifact than I would be with TypeScript, but it's, it's definitely possible and it's sort of an order of magnitude easier than it is with some languages where you're trying to preserve a source language semantics, for example. Sure. That's another one of the benefits of not including a runtime, right? Like with Elm, you end up with exactly. this compiled file that includes several thousand lines of just Elm stuff that isn't your code. It's just stuff needed to run Elm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, practically speaking um, with PureScript, we have a standard library and a set of core libraries that you would, you know, in most projects probably end up including, right? So that's going to be several thousand lines of JavaScript too. But for the projects like the ones I described I was initially working on where, you know, you really have zero dependencies and you're just building your own small library of data structures and these kinds of things, um, you have the option of literally having no dependencies um, and building everything yourself. Uh, which I think is, you know, it's, it's nice to have that freedom. And then, you know, there's this project where people are replacing the standard library, right? The, the PureScript compiler doesn't actually ship with any libraries at all. You sort of pick and mix what you want, which means people can build their own and people do that. So it's nice to have that flexibility. And it goes with, you know, this, this idea of, you know, how opinionated do you want your language to be? Do you want to choose one approach, one, one solution for a problem and, and say that's going to be the blessed solution? Or do you want to give people the freedom to sort of, you know, explore the solution space and, and, and pick one of, you know, one of few options. So if, if you do want to learn PureScript, where do you go to learn it? Are there built-in resources on the web page? Are there books or, or what do you do to get started with it? Yeah, so the, the website has um, the website has some articles and, and, and tutorials and that kind of thing. Um, and then it has a list of links to um, some community sites. So things like the IRC channel, um, the Reddit, subreddit, Google groups, this kind of thing. There's a, there's a PureScript book, which I worked on last year, um, which is actually targeted at JavaScript developers. So it starts from um, things called things like uh, underscore style maps and folds, and then it moves on to you know thing you know slightly more advanced topics like type classes and algebraic data types, but with a focus all the way through on sort of building real applications. So and, and using things that you would actually want to use on the web. So maybe canvas graphics or talking to DOM libraries or, or these kinds of things. Um, so I think that's a that's a good option. I've been told the difficulty level ramps up quickly with so like. The chapter number but yeah i would i would say that <laughs> it's got uh, the whole like how to draw an owl draw a circle draw right. the rest of the owl problem <laughs> exactly so i would i would recommend taking a look at that that's available you know for free as a, like epub and all these kinds of things but i would say you know if you're just sort of testing the water definitely join purescript irc on freenode you know we can sort of explain more about you know benefits and uh, trade-offs and all these kinds of things oh, and come oh, to oh. come to purescript conf 2016 too right where's that at uh, when 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 is that John, are we are we hosting that with um, LambdaConf again, or I'm not actually sure of the details. Yeah, that's on the spot. <laughs> PureScriptConf will be co-located with LambdaConf. It should be May 25th. It's the day immediately before LambdaConf, and that's in Colorado, and we're doing the University of Colorado. Springtime in Boulder. It's gorgeous. There'll be lots of fun stuff. Amazing lineup of speakers at PureScriptConf. Um, there's a chance to dig in and, and get some functional programming um, over the three days that is LambdaConf. Awesome. 
One of the posts I was reading about Pure Script, for people who haven't looked at it before, they really praised how, and I'm, I'm sure too with it just being a more functional language, it really helped in reading async code because it, the way you write it makes it look like synchronous code. So that might be a little bit too much to talk now about since we're at the end, but I didn't know if it was worth going into for a minute. No, I think I think that'd be fair game. One of the libraries, actually the most popular library out there for doing that is PureScript AF, which I wrote. So it's actually a, a really great topic to discuss. And what it lets you do is write a synchronous code as if it were ordinary synchronous code. Synchronous code. And it's uh, you don't have to worry about callbacks. You don't have to worry about error handling. All that stuff is baked in. And unlike the promises slash A plus specification, this one is actually very simple and easy to reason about, and it doesn't have edge cases. It doesn't suffer from all the sort of incidental complexity of that, those uh, family of specifications around promises. So it, it's actually super simple, and it's an amazing example of just the clarity and precision and ease of comprehension that using a language like PureScript can bring to a topic as gnarly as asynchronous programming. The semantics of AF are super simple, and, and there's lots of examples, great docs. Um, and also, I, I should point out in sort of PureScript's favor that no additional syntax was added to the language to make asynchronous operations so beautiful. If there's anything that was like intrigued me to take a look, it was that post. So that's the only reason I thought maybe it was worth asking that. Yeah, I think that's kind of like a, a common complaint in the JavaScript ecosystem, at least, until... Um, and I haven't written a lot of ES6, but until sort of things like ES6 promises came along, right? That handling callback hell is is sort of a common complaint. But yeah, it's, it's, you get a solution. I'm not going to say for free because it's, you know there's there's definitely some you know interesting problems around things like error handling. Um, but but once you I think once you uh, choose to work with some of these abstractions like Functor and a couple of related abstractions that we you know, Functor we were discussing earlier. Uh, and a couple of things like that. The way to structure these sorts of solutions is almost like suggested for you, and it sort of naturally led to the right solution. So I think you know that's one of the nice benefits of working with these kind of more interesting abstractions. And JavaScript's got uh, it's getting custom syntax for that one specific use case, <laughs> and not just that, but like generators and all these other things. Basically, there's PureScript is a, a language that's powerful enough you don't need to add new syntax to support every new use case. And I think. The fact that you can use sort of the same, you know, generic, uh, time-tested abstractions that that people have been using in other functional programming languages like Haskell to solve everything from asynchronous programming to generators and and uh, much more is is really a sign that it, it's on the right track. When you constantly every few years have to add additional syntax to cover new use cases in the language that's to sign your your programming in in my opinion in the wrong way at least you're not programming in a way that's composable and modular and well abstracted and PureScript gives you the tools necessary to do that that's cool awesome yeah well i think it's about time to wrap up so let's move on into picks all right then before we get to the picks i just want to acknowledge our silver sponsors there are a lot of exciting things happening in JavaScript. One or two conferences a year just aren't enough to keep up. Then there's the travel and hotel and food and getting to and from the airport, which is both time-consuming and a hassle, and expensive. This is why I've put together JS Remote Conf. It's a three-day online conference where you'll get 12 talks about the latest stuff going on in JavaScript. 
We already have talks lined up with people you know, like Aaron Frost, Amy Knight, A.G. O'Neill, and John Papa. You can get your tickets and more information at jsremoteconf.com. This episode is sponsored by Thinkful.com. Thinkful.com is the largest community of students and mentors. They offer one-on-one mentoring, live workshops, and expert career advice. If you're looking to build a career in front-end, back-end, or full-stack development, then go check them out at Thinkful.com. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money. You lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your back-end application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Braintree. So go check them out at braintreepayments.com slash javascriptjabber. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they're a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. Amy, do you want to go first? Sure. I have one this week. People may have already seen this, but it's new to me, and I wish I would have come across it much sooner. But it's a talk by Philip Roberts at JSConfU last year, and it's called What the Heck is the Event Loop Anyways? So if you are newer and you're not really familiar with how the event loop works in JavaScript, this is a great video to watch to get a firm understanding on that. And he also built, after the conference, a tool so that you can kind of experiment with it. So if you're a visual learner, even if you're not, you probably should take a look. I just really, really, really thought the talk was great and the tool that he built was awesome for learning. So it's so good. That's my only pick this week. (laughs) Awesome. Jameson, how about you? Boy, do I have picks for you. I have, I guess I have three or four picks. I don't know. One pick is The Man in the High Castle. It's a show on Amazon Prime. And it's from a Philip K. Dick novel. It's kind of an alternate history about if World War II had gone differently. But it's gorgeous. It's kind of a little slow to start off. It's still well done. But it's it's just they do a really good job of creating um, amazing looking scenery of what an alternate 1960s United States could look like. Um, and it's it's entertaining too. So if you like TV, you might check that out. My next pick is a talk from RubyConf. I've been watching a few of the talks from that conference and they're all really awesome. All the ones I've seen so far, but this one was my favorite. It's called How to Crash an Airplane by a guy named Nicholas Means. And he just tells this story of an airplane crash for about 35 minutes. And then the last five minutes are, and this is how this relates to teams. But he's a really good storyteller. And it's it's like an enthralling story. I was I was on the edge of my seat wanting to find out what happened. And then the, the analogies he makes to kind of being a better software team are, are cool too. Uh, so that was great. My next picks are community things. So I have some friends that run a, I guess it's a Haskell-ish meetup. It's kind of like a, so far it's been a more than just Haskell. Um, and they actually had a PureScript meet. One of the meetups was a like an intro to PureScript. Um, so if you live in or around Utah and you're interested in things like Haskell or PureScript, um, check out Lambda Lounge and then also check out this video of um, one of my friends presenting on PureScript. And then my last pick is Cho and I and, and someone else are actually, we're starting up an Elm meetup. Um, that will be December 10th in Utah. So again, if you live in and around Utah, check it out and, and join us. Utah is a cool place for software stuff and there's a lot of exciting things going on with functional programming here. Those are my picks. Awesome. All right, well, I will go next. So... I recently discovered 
because somebody posted it on the internet and I'm really upset at them because it's been trying to consume all of my free time. Screeps.com, which is an acronym for Scriptable Creeps. So if you're familiar with tower, desktop tower defense games, they call them the bad guys creeps. And it's basically a massive multiplayer online game where you have to program everything in JavaScript. So if you want to be involved at all and play it all, you have to completely program in JavaScript. If you want to spawn a new guy, you have, it's kind of like a real-time strategy game is probably what I would compare it to. But it's really cool and extremely deep and complex. It's not one of these simple little uh, short games. It's actually really big and in-depth. They have a huge, well, fairly well-documented API, and it's been really cool to screw around with. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. So check it out, screeps.com. And the other thing I want to pick is the book and uh, corresponding film called Most Likely to Succeed. I've been reading the book. I can't, the film is not, at least at this point, online where you can stream it. It was a film that was shown at a bunch of indie film festivals. festivals. Yeah. And it's won a ton of awards. And it's by these two guys that did a bunch of, done a bunch of research looking at the American education system and other Western education systems and just talking about the problems and how our education system is 150 years old and is completely the wrong thing. And instead of revamping it, we've simply been trying to make small fixes to it and doubling down on doing the wrong thing. And I wish that I had read more of it when we had our episode about college degrees because it's really changed a lot of my opinions about things. And I just find it absolutely fascinating. And for somebody who's pulled a daughter out of high school and has a son who's really struggling in public school, it's been very interesting for me to read this. So I highly recommend this. Uh, most likely to succeed. And last time, I'll throw in a little TV show since you uh, mentioned The Man in the High Castle. I was getting online to watch Man in the High Castle, and for some reason, one of the I was looking at the recommendations in this TV show called Dark Matter spawned up. And usually, if it's a recommendation that I've never heard of, the rating is super low, but the rating was actually really high. Like, it had like over four, four and a half stars on Netflix. So I checked it out, and I've been I watched a few episodes, and it's actually really quite good. Uh, the premise is really interesting. It's a sci-fi show about these people who wake up on a ship, and they, none of them have any memory of who they are and where they came from, and they're trying to figure out and they're being attacked, and it's really interesting. I've really enjoyed it. So sort of a mix maybe between Firefly and Star Trek. Uh, I hardly enjoyed it, so dark matter. And those are my picks. John, how about you? Yeah, so I'd say my picks are going to be, first off, uh, Lambda Conf, uh, mostly because of the, the free pure script conf that, that goes along with that. And the website doesn't have a 2016 version it only has a 2015 so i just went ahead and used the twitter account for LambdaConf. but if you want to go to the old website anyway you can check out that link there and again that's happening in may in boulder a really great opportunity to meet some other peer scripters and probably hack on some peer script projects my second link is going to be this javascript library that probably a lot of your listeners have heard about and or used uh, called Ramda that uh, its tagline is practical functional JavaScript. And it tries to take some of the FP goodness and translate it into JavaScript. And I do recommend for people who are curious with what functional programming is about and just sort of the different ways in which it can simplify your 
your program composition and simplify reasoning about your programs, I do recommend just playing with that. It can help inform you if it's worthwhile investing even more time in picking up a language like Elm or PureScript. And then finally, not because it's at all related to JavaScript, my final link is actually going to be... I feel like I should be doing a drum roll. <laughs> should yeah. be. Ba, 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 a link to a recipe on how to create a proper steak and ale pie. I actually made the a paleo version of this, almost paleo. There's no such thing as paleo ale, unfortunately. But uh, I made this uh, last week and it was so absolutely delicious that uh, I've committed to making it again, probably within the week, only I'm going to double or quadruple the batch because it was a big hit at home. Um, ever since I went to um, went to uh, the Lake District in England last year, or earlier this year and had the opportunity to try authentic steak and ale pie, I've been looking for something that's comparable, and this recipe definitely fits the bill. Super easy. You can make it in like you know 30 minutes of prep and two hours in the oven. And so, so delicious. You're going to want to make it again and again and again. Awesome. Well, uh, and then we got Phil. Yeah, I have, uh, I have three picks. So uh, the first one is a uh, Haskell library that I've been using recently um, called Tidal, which is a um, sort of software uh, synth, I think you'd describe it as. But it basically, it, well, it drives a synthesizer via this um this DSL, uh, domain-specific language that, that it defines. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of really fun to, to try it out. And if you're new to Haskell, uh, we, we tried it out with the local Haskell user group, and it's, it's a really good way to, uh, you know, apply these ideas of uh, functions and composition and all the, these kinds of functional programming ideas in, in you know, a, a more interesting different, you know, to a different application. So, yeah, um, I think check out Tidal. I think, it's, I think it's really neat. My second pick is a, a UI library uh, from PureScript, actually, that that was just started uh, earlier this week, I think, and it sort of really captured my attention. So I think it, it's a really nice, simple PureScript UI library with a, a very specific purpose. So I think it's a really nice example of some PureScript code. And the specific purpose is to take a, a sort of spreadsheet model of programming, um, where you have cells and, and uh, formulas in those cells, and the, the formulas re- relate the different cells to each other, uh, and then to turn that automatically into a UI application in the browser. So you know, spreadsheet, I think, is sort of a an, unappre- an unappreciated declarative programming language, right? You know, Excel is like the world's most used declarative programming language, if you like. So that's why I find it interesting, and I think other people might find it uh, an interesting introduction to PureScript. Um, and my final pick is uh, the ForwardJS uh, conference, uh, ForwardJS 4, um, which is on uh, February 10th, 2016, um, which I haven't been to before. I'm not sure if other people have been to that before, but... Um, I'm going to attend this year, and it looks, you know, it looks really interesting. It uh, focuses on things like trends in in JavaScript and the web platform. So yeah, that's, those are my picks. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much for coming and being on the show. We've really appreciated it and had a really good time getting educated about PureScript. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Had a really yeah. great time. Thanks very much. And we look forward to um, seeing everybody on the show. Or having you listen to us because we don't actually see you. But we imagine you in our minds whenever we're recording. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 
Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 